If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson, and today I'm sitting down with Charles Whelan, Senior Lecturer and Policy Fellow at the Rockefeller Center at Dartmouth College and author of several books, including Naked Statistics, Naked Economics, and Naked Money, all three I have read and highly recommend. That's um, how I got interested in Charles' work. And so I want to hand it over to you, Charles. Let's hear from you. I'd be really interested to know a little bit more about how you got started in stats. It was accidental, if you could describe <laughs> it that way, in part after I accidentally got involved in writing a book about economics. My background was more conventional journalism in the public policy field. My PhD is actually in public policy. I'm somebody who gets up thinking about healthcare and school reform and those kinds of things. Most of my economics classes and all of my stats classes were in grad school. And they were taught in a public policy program always with an eye toward solving problems. And that's, I think, what's going to intersect with your listeners. Don't just give me economics because you love the math and the Greek letters. Tell mm -hmm. me how it solves or informs something I care about. Mm -hmm. That was how, and when I, I wrote for The Economist as a journalist after getting my PhD, while I was doing that, I got a side hustle, I guess we would call it now, teaching economics and finance to journalists at the Medill School of Journalism. I assumed naively that there were books out there that would mm. be appropriate for non-experts on economics. I called my agent. I had not yet written a book successfully at the time. I was trying to write a book on the gambling industry. Nobody was interested. Mm. I said to her, I need a book on economics. I'm teaching these journalists. They don't want to do a lot of math, but they really need to understand the ideas. There was this long pause. She said, that book doesn't exist, but you're going to write it, and we're going to call it Economics for Poets. We changed the title, obviously, but that is the book. That was the audience. As I wrote it, I wanted people like my mother to understand why economics was so powerful. Not long after that, the publisher came to me and said, can you do the same thing for statistics? I was somebody who had literally, this is not an exaggeration, torn a statistics textbook in half. And as you know, th these things are not cheap. It was like a $120 <laughs> rampage, anger management problem, because the way it was structured is we're going to teach you how to derive coefficients, and we're going to throw Greek letters and equations. And then maybe if you make it to chapter 14, we'll give you one example of why you might care about this. And I thought that was insane. So I took the same approach as I did with Naked Economics. Let's start with why you should care about this. And it turns out with stats, once you understand the why and the intuition, what you're really doing, mm -hmm. then you can back into the formulas actually relatively easily. Yeah. And I mean, that's the part I appreciated about your work, especially. It's funny that you say that because I took, I was a, as a journalism student for my bachelor's in Toronto, and we had this dreaded day where we were going to learn math for journalists. <laughs> and thank you to Don Gibb, who was teaching that. And, you know, he put together some material, but I remember he put it together himself because 
there wasn't that book out at the time. And yeah, that was, that was a dreaded day for journalists, including myself. We didn't, we just didn't want to deal with numbers. That was for something else. We would have gone into a different field if we wanted to deal with numbers, but then, you know, as I like to think I've matured a little bit, I'm much more open to it, learning about it. And there's, I guess, less dread, especially with work like yours. And that's what I definitely wanted to talk to you about. I think it's very applicable to our listeners who are obviously interested in pragmatic solutions and getting things done, not just sort of the theoretical background of things. And I liked how you started off your book saying something like, this is for smart people who didn't take these courses. And so, yeah, I wonder, maybe we can talk about that. What, so a lot of our listeners have different backgrounds. Some are in the more specific, like data, math, stats might have taken those, but I was actually really surprised where I was working on a course for data analysts and a lot of them were scared of stats. They were working, they were, you know, they had taken a course in grad school or they just said they, they weren't comfortable with it. And they were data analysts, right? They weren't journalists, they weren't poets. And so there's this, yeah, there's this fear of, of math in general, and then the more, more theoretical economics. So how do we, how do we start to overcome that? How did you start to overcome that? I started overcoming it by first acknowledging, I don't love statistics. I don't love economics. I love what economics and statistics can do for me. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I don't love roadmaps, but I really like going on vacation when you're driving. So, but, so here's this tool that's super powerful that's going to get you places you want to go. Mm-hmm. And so love it for what it can do, not necessarily for the beauty of the paper and the map and the binding on the atlas. And, and it, you, when the economists reviewed naked statistics, this was actually a point they made. I think the opening line of the review was most books on statistics are written by people who love statistics. This was written by Charles Willem, who doesn't necessarily love statistics. And that's the truth. So, you know, I think my first admonition for anybody is pick up your head and figure out, like, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to make people safer? Are you trying to design better gun laws? Are you trying to sell more of your product? Are you trying to figure out who's going to, you know, like, and then let's back into how statistics can help you. And, you know, one question you're going to ask is what data do I have? What data do I need to collect? But if you don't start with where you're trying to go, then the GPS is not going to be that much help. Yeah. And I think at least in terms of like teaching and learning, which is where I'm focused right now myself, there's this idea that with YouTube and with all of these really accessible tutorials online in particular, you can figure things out once you know something, uh, like once you know a goal or once you have an objective. But with stats, with economics, with these these more general ideas, I re- there's a lot more baggage to it, sort of. You know, like it's not like, okay, I'm going to download a new program. I need to learn it. So I'll go on YouTube and watch a tutorial. I think there's that issue too, right? You realize, okay, well, first I need a little calculus behind me. Then I need a little of, you know, I need to go back to algebra. And then some people like myself need to go back to division and multiplication, right? Like there, you can't learn this in one tutorial. So Correct. what has and been you your strategy? Learn it in, in bytes and, there are things that you probably might not have been exposed to. Like you've got to understand what a distribution is. Mm-hmm. It sounds scary and standard deviation, this and that. But then when you figure out, all right, well, men's height is probably normally distributed. And you, you realize, you know, the median height, I think, is about or the mean height is about 5'10". And mm-hmm. so then there are going to be some people who are six feet, some people who are six five, a few who are six eight. If you're like, I understand that distribution. On the other side, there are going to be a few who are five, six, five, four, five, two. Like, okay, I understand that distribution. And then 
once you understand that distribution, you can start to understand why if there are 11 people who are all six, eight or higher, it's probably not a random occurrence. Mm -hmm. And then knowing that it's not a random occurrence from your distribution, you say, well, maybe that's the basketball team walking to the cafeteria, right? You know, so you learn it in pieces. Mm-hmm. And again, coming back to understanding them and then kind of putting them together like Legos. Yeah, I think the the intimidating part is if you imagine the, that Lego scenario, right? It's like getting one of these advanced Lego sets and not really having good instructions or if the instructions right, you just are there- dump them out of like the box textbooks. on the floor, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think- you know, so it seems like something very specialized, even though we all deal with math, uh, whether we want to or not, it seems like a very specialized discipline where people with economics PhDs can do it. But, you know, let's let's just not even try. Maybe we can start with, with the idea of, of the naked in your title. How did that come to be? But also, what does that reflect in terms of what you're trying to do? Yes, I think it was around the time that maybe naked juice and some other things came out. And the meaning of those products was like stripped down to their essence, no unnecessary things, you know, no preservatives. We took that and said, okay, let's strip down economics and statistics to their essentials. Like, what are the ideas you need to understand? Like, can we strip away the preservatives of this discipline? Mm-hmm. And that's really what the book's trying to do. Like, we're really going to get rid of any unnecessary math or anything like that because the the, the essence of it is so important. That I think was the the philosophical underpinning of those titles. And then of course, if you're gonna write a book on economics or statistics and it's gonna scare the hell out of people looking at it across from Barnes and Noble, you probably got a better shot of getting them to come to the table if it's got naked in the title. So there's, (laughs) there's a base motive here and a very elegant explanation and they happen to fit together nicely. Mm -hmm. And what, what is, what I mean, what are those preservatives that you were able to remove? Like, how would you, how did you get to the core? And what do you recommend for people trying to get to the core of, of difficult topics like this? What was helpful yeah, for you? So you don't need to know how to derive a correlation coefficient as if, or you, or use matrix algebra, which is the underpinning, say, for regression analysis, because your phone can probably run regression at this point. I mean, any stats program. But what you really need to know is how getting the wrong data fed into a super powerful computer is going to give you a completely wrong answer. Like, Mm. if you don't understand how regression works, big picture, what could go wrong, how the independent variables predict the dependent variable, like, none of that is math, that is philosophy, then you're going to go wildly wrong. And none of that depends on a knowledge of matrix algebra. Believe me, I have suffered through so much matrix algebra. And I, it still doesn't stick. So the essence there is, why does this work? How does it work? And often most important, how can it go terribly wrong, even if you're using a powerful computer and your regression is technically correct? Yeah. And that's that's a perfect segue into what I wanted to ask you about in terms of, of business-related problems, because it is not a hard sell in organizations to say, we need to be more data-driven. Everyone wants to be more data-driven. They are, I mean, we can talk about a spectrum from no knowledge and just, you know, doing things the way we've always done it, which isn't going to be very good for an organization typically to, you know, the, the Googles and the Apples of, of the world. But in general, people are trying to become more data-driven in their organizations. Obviously, that relates to statistics, 
but how would you say it does in a, like, what are some of the concrete ways in which stats needs to be thought about at an organizational level? I think first of all, you got to appreciate what data can tell you, like what can we do? What information helps our business? I'll give you one of my favorite examples. It's going to feel old now, but I like it when Netflix gives me film recommendations. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you kind of take that for granted, but that is a brilliant use of data, right? So what did they do? They've got information on films I like because I evaluate titles. They know what I rented. Mm -hmm. They have information on what tens of millions of other people rent and like. And then they built what's really just a fancy correlation, which is, okay, if Chris liked these 17 films and gave them five stars, and Charles liked 16 of those films and gave, gave him five stars, what do we, how do we think he's going to feel about that 17th film that Chris gave five stars? He's going to like it, mm-hmm. right? That's all they did. Now, you know, it gets super complicated from there, but really what they said is, wow, we got a lot of data on what people like, and we can see patterns. Some people like certain films, and let's do something that provides value for our customer by taking advantage of the data and feeding recommendations. And now you see that obviously much more frequently with book recommendations and and movies and the like. But I think Netflix was one of the first to really do it effectively. Yeah, and I I think when you think about that at an organizational level, obviously Netflix has some amazing data scientists who have, I'm sure, PhDs and advanced knowledge of, of stats, algorithms, all those things that you would imagine. I'm curious what you think a good level or approach would be for people who are in you know, product, marketing, things that are not necessarily math related, but obviously that would help. What kind of what kind of ways would you encourage them to think about it? Because yeah, they're not going to be writing the algorithm, right? There are specialists who are going to be doing that. We don't, they don't need to read, I'm sure, even if they would enjoy it, naked stats or anything, because they they have that knowledge, right? But for the people who the same kinds of people who might really benefit from naked stats and these other books how should they be approaching that in their organization? I think they conceptually need to answer a couple questions. One is, what am I trying to do? Like, what am I trying to predict something? Am I trying to identify something? Am I trying to predict fraud? Like, or what would I like to be able to do? Mm-hmm. And, and that may be, you know, credit card fraud detection is a great one. I mean, I think they're out, just as a little side story here. Like, I remember... Like my credit cards, I've shy, I've used my credit cards in Liberia, Madagascar, crazy, and they don't get turned off. Like I can charge things in rural Colombia and somewhere in the back end of Visa MasterCard, they're like, yeah, this guy might be, he's probably in rural Colombia. I went to Nordstrom in Orange County and they turned it off. Boom, <laughs> like that. And the question is, okay, this is a guy who on the surface would appear to be far more likely to be buying a suit in Northern, but no, their algorithm was brilliant. I don't live in Orange County. You don't usually buy a suit in a place where you don't live. The only reason I was buying a suit in Orange County was my luggage had been lost on a flight and I needed mm-hmm. a suit that afternoon. So their algorithm was right. If there was, and you know, I was able to turn it right back on, but like, that's really powerful. And mm-hmm. they also know where the hell I've been traveling around the world. Like, well, this guy's been in 18 countries. Like, he's probably in that place. So, I like, what does that do? It doesn't discon- inconvenience me when I'm in place. Like, I don't want to have to be turning it on from Liberia. And it really could have and should have protected me in Orange County. So, 
Like you don't need to be a data scientist to understand we got to protect against fraud. And that's really good for Charles if we don't turn it off too frequently and we really catch it. Like that's what you want to do if you're a credit card company. So the second question you want to ask is what data do we have mm -hmm. that will help us answer that question? Well, what you've got all my charges for the last 20 years. That's what tells you I'm likely to be traveling around Africa's what tells you I don't live in Orange County. It's tells you I've never shopped in North. Like, mm -hmm. so you you don't have to be able to do any statistics to be able to walk into a data scientist's office and say, look, I think based on what we know and what we're trying to do, we should be able, like you with your big brain, should be able to write a model that allows us to do this better. Yeah. I think, I mean, that's a perfect example of of things working well, at least for the most part. It sounds like you had to call your Visa card once, but no, it seems to be, those are examples, Netflix, fraud detection of things that usually go pretty well. I'm curious if you have examples or thoughts on ways that organizations haven't used it well, maybe things to watch out for cases that, you know, are, are warnings to others. Don't go down this kind of route when you're dealing with stats. Yes. If your data are not representative of what you think you're trying to represent, then anything you do with the data will be wrong. I'll give you an example from polling, right? So it's, you may or may not be polling customers, but certainly we look at political polling mm -hmm. and your sense is it's getting worse and you're right. Like increase, if you watched what the, the polling showed in the second round election in France, they were showing it to be very, very close and Macron ends up winning by 12 or 13 points. Hmm. Polls were way off and clearly with the presidential polling, they've been way off. Here's why that is the case. It is not about the models they're using. It's not because the people doing the math are making errors. It's because the data that we're getting on which we're basing these conclusions are increasingly unrepresentative of the public. Interestingly, back in about 2011, I'm here at Dartmouth College, we had the then editor-in-chief of Gallup come up and he predicted this. He said, look, we are systematically getting worse at what we're doing. Here's why. Most people now have caller ID on their phone. 20 years ago, they did not. So mm. everybody answers the phone. Now caller ID means many of the people we call aren't answering and the people who do answer are no longer representative of the population. Most people now have at least one cell phone, more than one, which means we don't know if you were calling your cell phone or your landline. It used to be that every household had a landline. That was it. We yeah. don't know. A more subtle point is even... If our sample's off, back in the old days, we could say, wow, we don't have enough 212 numbers. Those are all the people in New York. We need more through it. Your area code actually yeah, yeah. was where you were. Now, yourself, I'm still got a 773 number, and I've been living in New Hampshire for 10 years. So we can no longer tell if our sample is skewed. Yeah, so, yeah. And then you throw in, you know, one of the complications around Trump is we discovered people are less likely to tell the truth when it came to that. And so now, now we're having trouble getting a representative sample. They won't answer the phone and we don't know if they're telling the truth, right? That's all a data collection problem. That is not a math problem. Hmm. So I think you ask yourself, oh, we got all this great data. Is it just the people who wrote into us? In which case, those are the people who are really happy and really upset about the people who are just using your product quietly aren't represented. So that has nothing to do with your statistical methods and everything to do with the, the level of representation of your data. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point. I mean, at Pragmatic, we talk about the the noisy 20%, right? Those are the people that will oh. call, that will respond, that have a lot to say. Yes. And while that's not invalid, it's also not usually representative. I wonder if there's some statistical ways or approaches that you might start thinking about dealing with that. Because yeah, there's usually a lot of data on that noisy 20 um, especially if you're relying on people to call in or to to do whatever, right? But it's really frustrating because you want to make products in general, you know, generally speaking, for much more uh, a much more diverse group than that noisy twenty. They may even be the opposite of what the other eighty percent are thinking, right? Because the happy, let's say, say they're happy eighty percent, they're not calling in, they're not complaining, and so if you changed it for the twenty, then suddenly eighty percent would be unhappy. Yeah, what are some techniques that you might want to approach that situation with? This is hard, and Gallup hasn't cracked the nut yet. In fact, back in 2011, the then editor-in-chief said they might actually have to go door-to-door. So ironically, they might go back to the methods of like 1940, when what skewed it was many households didn't have a phone. Yeah. Right? So I think, first of all, just relying as little as possible on self-provided data. I mean, you said you don't want a poll where here, click online if you feel strongly about the performance of President Biden. Like, you're only going to get the 20%. You're going to get the yeah. polls. So if people are offering it up, it's super cheap. Your temptation is like, wow, you're going to get a lot of numbers and people confuse the quantity of data with the quality. Yes. If you've got thousands and thousands of totally lousy observations, you'd rather have 15 that were actually representative. So you know, you might actually have to pay people to get a broader cross-subject. The gold standard is random selection. So if I've got sales data, you know, here are 10,000 people who bought my product last week, I'm going to randomly select customers and I'm going to try and get feedback from all of them, Mm -hmm. right? Now it's hard to get a hold of them, which is why people increasingly, Nielsen will pay you money to do things. A really good polling firm, if they elect Chris Richardson in their sample, they're not going to let you loose. I was actually picked as a Nielsen household on the ratings, these people are ferocious. I mean, first they send you something in the mail, you throw it out. Then they something, send something in the mail and it's got like a dollar bill. And it says, you know, thank you in anticipation. You keep the dollar, you throw the rest out. <laughs> then they call you, you let it go to voicemail. They call you again. They're like, we're going to keep calling. So you finally answer and they say, you know, it's really important. And eventually you fill the thing out. But if mm. you're doing a survey on the cheap, you're just going to move on and say, oh, who will respond? And at that point, your survey has lost validity. So you're going to have to spend some money. You're going to have to be perseverant. And you're going to have to do some kind of what we would have described as kind of old-fashioned shoe leather. Yeah. And I think, you, I mean, you mentioned it exactly, right? There's this, this push for data, but there's not always the same push for quality data, for quality sampling or whatever the issue is that you're trying to tackle. Have you seen places make improvements, like short of? the Nelson stalking you. It sounds like, yeah, definitely. You wouldn't want everyone to do that. I wouldn't want anyone to do that really, but I understand the importance of sampling and getting accurate information. What are some of the things that we can think about in the future, especially organizations trying to deal with these issues? I think on the online ads, although often they invade our privacy and have other issues, I see them getting better and better in ways that approximate kind of what Netflix was doing. I find to a stunning degree that the ads targeted to me on Facebook are actually pretty good. I mean, when I look Mm -hmm. at like the percentage of things that I've bought and not regretted buying, 
you know, <laughs> wow, that blue cashmere sweater is kind of what I was looking for. Why? Because they got my search history. They saw I, I bought the purple cashmere sweater. You know, like I'm actually amazed yeah. by the ability to which they've been able to piece together other my other purchasing habits. And I don't mind that because they're directing me to a place that I might not necessarily find. Now, they're kind of dumb in that when I buy a pair of golf shoes, yeah. I then get ads for golf shoes for another seven years. And it hasn't processed like when you buy once, you're not going to buy anymore. So they're both smart and dumb at the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a person who knew that I bought them would just scratch the ad. So I think you can continue to do what we're doing well around these associations and correlations while trying to get rid of some of the really silly rough edges. If your organization wants to leverage data to drive success, explore Pragmatic Institute's training offerings. We provide individuals and teams with actionable guidance, hands-on practice, and a business-oriented approach so that they can solve problems and propel decision-making with data. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Yeah, and I think, you know, as an organization, especially larger organizations that are trying to help develop their teams, help develop their strategic outlook and and share those in whatever ways they can. They want to be more data-driven. They want to, I think, I haven't heard it as much, but I think it's implied that they want to be more stats-driven or or math-driven, even if they, like those are intimidating terms, so I don't think they're used as much, but you can't really be data-driven without those things. What what kind of things would you encourage people to do? I'm sure that it sort of came up as you were researching and writing. As you said, once you once you strip things to their essential use, then it's easier to see what we should and shouldn't focus on. How do you how do you think organizations might want to train or think about training people, improving their knowledge of data, stats, these kinds of things that you've tackled? So what I'm going to talk about here is attention, because what, the first thing we want organizations to do is figure out what measures, what matters, and then measure it, right? You know, so if you want your, your insurance company, you want your customers to be happy, you want to be measuring how happy they are with the transaction. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the old aphorism that you can't, you know, what is it? You can't manage what you can't measure, right? So, like, let's get better at collecting data. And if you think back to Moneyball, which was really a game changer in this field, the reason that Billy Bean was so successful with the Oakland A's and using stats was he replaced real data with just kind of hunches. And the scouts used to assume that batters who took walks weren't very good hitters. Well, it turns out if you get on first base with a walk, you know where you are? First base. It's the same as if you blasted it against the wall. People, you know, batters who take walks tend to score a lot of runs. So they said, wait, you know, what, what do we care about? Runs, winning. What are the things that are associated with that? Well, it turns out players who played in college are better than the promising athletes who didn't go to college, right? So they replaced supposition with data-supported conclusions. So do more of that. Here's the danger, which is it's very hard to reward people on metrics without distorting their behavior in ways that can be quite pernicious. I've worked with this for a long time because I teach an education policy class and standardized test scores are yep. the classic example, right? What do we want kids to learn? That's very important. We want them to be proficient. We're going to test their proficiency. There's nothing unreasonable about that. But as soon as we do that, we now set in motion a series of distortions that range from teaching to the test, 
which is no bad if you're, you know, if you're being tested in subtraction and you teach kids subtraction, that's good. Yeah. But there I've read papers where kids can do subtraction when one number is over another, you know, seven and minus four, draw line three. But when you put it horizontal, seven minus three, they don't even understand what it is. So <laughs> what have you done? You've, you've taught them to like a mechanical process. Yeah. There's, yeah. you know, there's the famous Atlanta cheating scandal where they were getting, I think schools were getting rewarded for positive test scores. This one's kind of interesting because the cheating was detected using a statistical algorithm. So it was statistics gone right and statistics gone wrong. But in the end, they were just changing answer sheets because there was so much at stake. There, I'll give you another example that was more well-intentioned, harder to predict. The state of New York wanted to provide information for consumers around healthcare quality, in particular around cardiologists. And you think, all right, well, you want information about cardiologists and one seemingly important benchmark is the mortality rate. You know, what proportion of this doctor's mm. patients die? Yeah, yeah. They made this information public and that's it. Like they didn't sanction anybody, but immediately it changed behavior. Cardiologists said, look, I'm going to be evaluated on this mortality rate. I really don't want to take these very sick patients because they're more likely to die. So what did you do? You tried to help consumers. And in the process, you made it harder for the sickest people to get a cardiologist. Right. So I think there's this tension and it's going to depend on what you're doing between using data to good effect and then changing people's behaviors in which in ways that they manipulate the statistic, but not the behavior. And maybe even in ways that are inimical to the behavior that you're trying to encourage. Yeah, I mean that the the cardiology example was so fascinating from your book because I yeah I hadn't heard of that but it make on some level it makes perfect sense right but don't take sicker people take the easiest possible cases because your your stats you know you that somebody's going to be looking at your stats and I think we see this all the time also in sales and marketing right oh, is that you'll sell absolutely. to the easiest salesperson or or the you know whatever the case is you'll discount because if they're not measuring discounts you'll just discount like crazy because then you know. Yeah, so yeah, we or, have these cases. Yeah, or we're going to overpromise, and I'm going to get my quota, and then someone's going to have to cut, install the software. I've been motivated by this quota, which exactly. is both price and quantity. Like you think you're getting it right, and then you go to install, and the customer's like, "But they told me I'd be able to fly." You know, like, <laughs> "Well, no, right?" Yes, yeah, so that that's a very good example. Yeah, and so as we start to think about, you know, what we've seen in the past. I wonder if you can set any frameworks or or expectations for where we might want to go as as organizations, and that can be in diverse fields. What are some of the ways that you see people better using or better thinking about stats, data, and related subjects, like making improvements? Yes, I think sometimes less is more going deeper and more expensive as opposed to some superficial summary. So increasingly every time I do and I take my car to the dealer, I buy a bagel, I get this little survey, how did I do one star to five star? And you know, there's some marketing person there, our customer's important. Well, there are two things. One is I'm tired of these things. Yeah. So you really, you've just kind of annoyed me. And second, the Honda guy's gaming this too, because he's sending me an email saying, I'd really like five stars. And I'm not sure Honda's acting. And I feel, well, he seemed nice enough, but the service was fine, but nothing, you know, I don't want to get him fired. And so increasingly, yeah. I think what Honda's getting is useless. Whereas if they spent some money and selected a smaller number of customers and maybe paid me 50 bucks or gave me $100 off my next service and went in more depth, 
I'd give them 20 minutes of time in my time instead of three seconds, yeah. they might actually learn more about that customer experience, which is in some ways more old fashioned, but I think probably more meaningful. If we go back to say the test core example, you know, you first of all, you want to make sure your metric is really measuring what you care about. So we want kids who are good at math. The best we can do is kids who are good at taking math standardized tests. Already, we've kind of lost some data there. Mm -hmm. But there are tests like the PISA test, which are much more expensive to administer, but they are long form questions. So we go to a smaller sample of kids. They show the work. And you can make much more powerful inferences about the degree to which they understand what they're doing from that test, but you got to spend the money to do it. Yeah. And so I guess that's one of the main trade-offs that, that we have to think about, especially people who are in charge of sort of setting st strategy for their organization, for their analyses. Those are some of the trade-offs. Yes. And, you know, I think there's this temptation like, wow, I can get so much data cheaply. Mm-hmm. And, you know, let's go back to economics. First, you get what you pay for, right? And everything involves trade-offs, right? So, like, you know, we'd go back to the first book. And so, yeah, if you were able to get a million observations free, you know, well, that's about what you paid, you know, worth what you paid for. Yeah, that reminds me of something I heard uh, uh, in an earlier interview. Data is super cheap because it's so plentiful. It's all everywhere. Wisdom is much more difficult to acquire and therefore it's much more valuable. Yes. And well, that's, you know, here I am sitting at an institution of higher education. That's what we're trying to figure out. Like, I don't need to teach you the state capitals anymore because yeah. not that we do that in college, but because you can look it up on Google. But yeah. I do need you to be able to take all this information in and make some informed, sensitive decisions. That's the harder piece to teach. Yeah, absolutely. I know I've taken up so much of your time and I really appreciate it. You have some new material out that I just wanted to touch on, let people know about. You want to say a little bit about the, the book that just came out, your more recent stuff? Yeah, I've got two. I am a man, I don't know of many talents, many, I'm a man of different talents, I guy. guess. <laughs> yeah. So in 2016, 2017, my family and I took off and traveled around the world for nine years. So right before COVID, we took a family gap year. The book is called We Came, We Saw, We Left, which is about that trip. The subtitle, which I think is more telling, is nine months, six continents, three teenagers. So mm. this is a family memoir around, about a trip around the world with the whole family. And you can, you know, there no detail is unspared in the description <laughs> of what went wrong there. I would just as a, it's not really a spoiler alert, but there were five total family meltdowns, which is defined as three people crying at once or one adult and one child. <laughs> I right? love that data you, you shared. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. There, there you go for quantification. Uh, that just came out in paperback, I think, this week. And then I wrote a book on writing. So in some ways, what we've talked about here is communicating clearly. Mm -hmm. And I have been a journalist, as I mentioned. I was a speechwriter twice, once for the governor of Maine, once for Mayor Daley in Chicago. I've written screenplays. I write these books. And so this is a book called Write for Your Life, which is about writing and communicating in presentation form as clearly and effectively as possible. Yeah. Yeah, I look forward to checking those out because like I said, your your earlier work on the naked stats and economics and money was always it was always something I really appreciated as someone who didn't have that background in in terms of formal education, but knew that it was important and knew that I I wanted to know more. And I think a lot of people probably listening share those ideas. Yeah, um, and I think you'll you'll find a similarity between the the econ and stats books and the writing book because they all go back to first principles. Like what mm -hmm. are you trying to do here? 
And in the case of writing, people if, or presentations, people throw up 37 slides yep. to no effect. You know, like I'm going to dazzle you with my graphics. And really, it's like, okay, what do you want him to do? Do you want him to buy your product? Like, and then starting with that, let's figure out the most effective way to make that happen, as opposed to starting out with the most sophisticated way of bells and whistles, which may or may not be effective. Yeah. And I think we see that all the time, right? The people, it's great if you can do math, but if you can't communicate it, it's virtually useless. And if you don't, if you are communicating, but you don't understand the math or whatever it is that you're communicating, that's also useless. And so, yeah, the, these things are much more interdependent than I think a lot of us want to admit who have specialized in one area or another. And it's great to, to think about that. With that in mind, people who are, for people who are listening, who want to make some kind of improvement, they want to improve their, their stats, they want to learn more, they want to be more effective. What are, what are two things that they could do tomorrow? that within the next day, they could make a significant impact on either their ability or their knowledge or, or just the way they work with and think about stats, data, and these kinds of issues? The first thing is to just broaden what you read and are exposed to. I, you know, I think in this media environment, we all fall into our silos. Mm -hmm. Social media is putting us in these silos. And it's amazing how much you can learn from things that might not appear superficially relevant and you can be a connector. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. When I was at the University of Chicago, I taught some students who were joint degree students at the business school and the policy school. And I had one student who came, I taught at the policy school. She came into class one day, we were doing something on aging and policies related to an aging population. And she just started laughing. And I said, well, what's so funny? And she said, you know, at the business school, they think I'm a genius. And I said, well, you know, we both know you're, you're not a genius, you're perfectly capable, but clearly you find humor in this too. Why do they think you're a genius? And she said, because they're not thinking about the things that we're talking about, but they all have business implications. So when I walk back across the midway and talk about the aging population, it's going to open a whole new bucket of business and entrepreneurial activities. Mm -hmm. But if they're not exposed to that demographic trend, they'll never see it. So she said, all I do is walk across the midway <laughs> and say what they're talking about on the other side. And everyone thinks it's great. So, you know, be that connector. Yeah. And I think the second thing is when you see someone who's done something cool with data, like the example I had with them turning off my credit card at Nordstrom, which by the way, made me happy because I was so impressed and because it was so easy to turn it back on, hmm. ask yourself, how did they do that? Right? So, uh, like in the physical environment, people will say, how do they build that? But you can do the same thing in the data environment. Like, wow, that, like, how do they know? I actually, this one's kind of, on my Facebook feed, I got an advertisement in the headline. I had this guy like swinging a golf club, banging the ground. And the headline was stop sucking. I mean, that's literally what it said. And I'm like, wow, how do they know that I've had such a rough couple of weeks on the <laughs> golf course? Like, how did they do that? You know, so do the same thing, you know, whether it's a poll, whether it's a very clever use of data, whether it's a recommendation for a product or something like that. And I think then if it's being done well, you'll gain some insights that you might be able to borrow. Yeah, that's excellent advice. Things that I try to do, but not intentionally enough, I think. And that's a great reminder to push ourselves a little bit more. Charles, for people who want to see more of your work, follow you, what do you recommend they check out? CharlesWheelan.com is 
where all the books are, although it's reminded me I've got to update it with the writing book, and also nakedeconomics.com. Both of those websites get you to kind of my main page, and that tells you what I got going on. Thank you so much again for joining us on this episode of Data Chats. And to our listeners, you can harness the power of your organization's data with Pragmatic Institute's newest course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Partner with data professionals to uncover business value, make informed decisions, and solve problems. Speak to our sales team about scheduling a private training tailored to your team's needs. Learn more at pragmaticinstitute.com slash data.